Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for being our holy God. You've given us your holy word. Help us to be those who would hear it, heed it, and keep it. Father, we know we need your power to be able to understand it, to comprehend it, to grasp it in its fullness, and to live it out. So we ask your spirit now to empower us, to illumine our minds and our hearts unto your truth, that we may, by your power, live it out unto your glory, to the benefit of your people, and to your praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled this message, The Blessed Life, The Blessed Life. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. They also do not work unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, may my ways be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. The Psalms, I'll give a quick recap um, of what was taught last week. Uh, The Psalms are a theological songbook. It's a book of praise and worship. It's a book that reveals God and praises God for who he is and what he has done. And the Psalms are arranged to portray the goal of praising the Lord in the midst of enemies around us and the sin that remains within us. The Psalms are for us to know how to be blessed in the midst of wickedness and difficulty and trials and suffering and whatever is going on around us. God doesn't want us to escape from reality or to ignore it or to suffer through it begrudgingly. He wants us to be blessed through that reality. He wants us to praise him as he forms our hearts and behavior as we live in this world and submit ourselves to his will and to his word. And in the Psalms, praise is the expected outcome. But meditation is the underlying activity which we are to undertake in as we allow the power of God's word that's living and active to form our hearts as we look to the God of the word in the word of God. God has given us the Psalms not merely to find a mood that fits our present state of being, but rather God has given us the psalms to form us. God intends these songs to shape and form who we are as his people so that we would truly experience the blessed life and this in the midst of wickedness and wicked counsel. Psalm 1 and 2 function as an introduction, a prelude, and the first word of Psalm 1 captures the intended purpose of the book of Psalms, blessedness. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. The first word, blessed, is a key word that runs throughout the Psalter from beginning to end. It begins Psalm 1, verse 1, and it begins Psalm 119, verse 1 as well, and verse 2. To be blessed means a state of well-being, to flourish, to prosper, to be happy. In reality, this is what everyone desires. Everyone wants to prosper. Everyone wants to flourish. Everyone wants a state of well-being and to be happy. You can say, I want, and fill in the blank. Why? Because it will make me happy. 
Martin Luther said, the search for personal blessedness is common to all men. There is no one who does not desire to fare well or hate to fare badly. And a recent search online showed that 27,000 people per month are looking up how to be happy. How to be happy. Yet blessedness is not as the word happiness might connote today, merely a feeling. When the Bible tells us that someone is blessed, it is not telling us what they feel, but what they are. Happiness is a subjective state based upon changing circumstances, whereas blessedness is an objective state based upon an unchanging God, an unchanging word. And blessedness only comes from God. And why does blessedness only come from God? Because God is our sovereign creator who created us for his own glory, that through glorifying him, we would be blessed. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them. God as creator gave to mankind whom he created in, in his image all of creation for them to enjoy and to have dominion over as his representatives, as his blessing to them. In other words, God promises blessing to mankind under his rule. And therefore, blessing comes as the Psalms portray only for those who submit to God as king, who submit to God as their creator and king. And this is evident in the first two Psalms, which are the gates into the rest of the Psalter. Psalm 1 is about the way of the blessed man in contrast to the way of the wicked man. Psalm 2 is about the rule and reign of Messiah as king, the second coming of Jesus. And therefore, to be blessed is to realize God's initial intent for mankind to flourish in submission to him and to have dominion over the rest of creation as his representatives. But the reality of sin prevents man from ruling as God intended in his blessing of Genesis 1.28. Therefore, in Genesis 3.15, God gives a promise. God promises to one day raise up a seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will exercise the dominion that Adam failed to accomplish so that through him, the Son of God and Son of Man, the true and better Adam, we would experience the fullness of the kind of blessing God promised for mankind. And so both of these passages, Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 3.15, and their underlying promises of blessing by exercising dominion through a seed of the woman are key in understanding the progression of thought through the Psalms and ultimately the nature of true blessedness. And we see Jesus himself reiterating this teaching and understanding in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in his Sermon on the Mount. It begins with Beatitudes, the blessedness of those who live in light of and belong to the kingdom of God in submission to the king. We also see this in the very last book of divine revelation in scripture, the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.3 and Revelation 22 verse 7 speak about the blessing that comes to the man who hears and reads the words of this prophecy and keeps them. And so this, this idea of blessing tied to the word of God is throughout scripture. We see this in 
Psalm 2, verse 12 as well, the ending of these two introductory psalms that lead into the rest of the Psalter, Psalm 1 and 2, it reads in Psalm 2, verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here's the fundamental truth that you will find over and over in the book of Psalms. Take refuge in God. Take refuge in Yahweh because he is the source of true blessedness and the one who will provide safety, comfort, encouragement, hope, and protection in the midst of a fallen world. The truly blessed person, the Psalms teach us, will not allow his conception of blessedness to be shaped or influenced by the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly or the news or social media or any other man. Rather, his delight, what will shape and form his path, is the law of Yahweh, the Torah of Yahweh. Our path, our way, our lives, in other words, are driven by whatever we allow to shape our image of what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy, to prosper, to flourish. But it is only submission to God and to his word that will lead to true blessedness. God has given us the Psalms to form our hearts, which in turn lead us on the path of true blessedness. And this is what we will see in Psalm 119. Again, Psalm 119 is an acrostic or alphabetical psalm. All eight verses of this first stanza that I read begin with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All eight verses of the second stanza begin with the, with Beth, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It aids in memorization and contains the whole alphabet from beginning to end, signifying the importance and necessity of the Word of God for the entirety of our lives. And we'll go through the entire alphabet, 22 stanzas. This week, we're looking at Aleph. What we will learn from these 22 stanzas are 22 tragedies or dangers that result from neglecting God's Word. Or on the flip side, 22 blessings and promises that come to those who commit and devote their lives to the Word of God. And I'll quickly go through a summary of each stanza again. If you neglect the Word of God in your life, you're casting aside blessing. And that's what we'll see this afternoon. If you neglect the Word of God, you're casting aside blessing in your life. You will also be casting aside purity, wisdom, strength, joy, and understanding of God's love, hope, favor, discernment, influence for the kingdom of God, comfort, life itself, obedience, illumination, the fear of God, truth, conviction, passion, intimacy, progressive sanctification, praise, and answers to prayer. That is what will happen if you neglect the word of God. You're casting aside all of those things. On the flip side, the 22 blessings or promises that come to those who commit and devote their lives to the word of God. Purity, blessing, love, joy, truth, passion. And we'll look at those each each week. All of these things, only God can provide. He's the source. He's the supplier. And he does so through his living and active, all-powerful, all-sufficient word as we avail ourselves and place ourselves in the blessed path of obedience to his holy word. The Word of God is the primary means of grace for perseverance and spiritual growth and maturity to live a blessed life. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it, by the pure milk of the Word, you may grow in respect to salvation. John 17.17 speaks about the people of God, that they're sanctified by the truth of the Word of God. James also gives testimony to the sufficiency of Scripture. 
James chapter 1 verse 25 says, one who looks intently at the perfect law. Perfect meaning trustworthy, lacking nothing, complete. And he continues, one who looks intently at the perfect law and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. All that pertains to life and conduct for a believer is bound up in the scriptures. Our spiritual sufficiency and sustenance comes from God and is ministered from the word by the spirit to the heart of a believer. And so we absolutely need the word of God for and in our lives. Do you want to experience the joy of a blessed life? Do you want to experience the joy of a blessed life? In these verses, the psalmist will teach, will teach us that if we neglect the word of God, we are casting aside blessing in our lives. Or you can look at it as the psalmist teaching us the blessing or promise that comes to those who commit and devote their lives to the word of God. We'll take note of the necessity of the word of God in the life of a believer and consequently what results if you neglect the word of God in your life. We'll see three testifying realities of the word of God. Three testifying realities of the word of God. Verses one through three, what it affirms, which is blessedness. What it affirms, blessedness. Secondly, verses four through six, what it requires, obedience. What it requires, obedience. And lastly, verses seven and eight, what it produces, holy affections. What it produces, holy affections. First, what it affirms, blessedness, verses one through three. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. They also do not work unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the first Hebrew word in these two verses. The same word that begins Psalm 1, verse 1. Therefore, it is the word of God in the believer's life that produces the life of blessing. This is what the word of God testifies. This is what the word of God affirms. And as we'll see in this first stanza and throughout Psalm 119 is the emphasis and exaltation of the word of God for our lives. It's been likened to a, a jewel or a diamond or <clears throat> kaleidoscope where the psalmist rotates the beauty and the reflection of the word of God by using different words to shine and speak of scripture. And some of these words include law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, word, way, promise. These are synonyms and characteristics of different aspects of the word of God that display the all-encompassing, comprehensive, sufficient, and divine guide for our lives. All 176 verses are therefore proclaiming, promoting, picturing, and permeated with the word of God. Psalm 119 has been called the Christian's golden ABCs of praise, love, power, and blessing of the word of God. And that's how it begins. Verse 1, the first Hebrew word is blessed. And it communicates the idea of completeness. And that is supported by the word blameless as well at the end of the verse. Therefore, the translators have, have it as how blessed. How blessed, meaning it's beyond measure. Fullness of blessedness. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blameless here does not mean perfect. Rather, it means to have integrity. To be the same inside as we appear on the outside. The Bible speaks of believers who still sin, yet are blameless and blessed 
because they keep the law of Yahweh. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. Now it happened that when Abram was 90 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you and that I may multiply you exceedingly. God's not telling Abraham to be perfect. He's telling him to walk before me and be blameless. Walk with integrity. Keep my word. Abraham was not sinless. This has to do with integrity and keeping the law of Yahweh. Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. I will give your seed all these lands, and by your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. There's a connection between blessing and keeping the law of Yahweh. Job is another example. Job 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That doesn't mean perfect. Yet at the end of the book of Job, we see him repenting. Job 42 verses 5 and 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I reject myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Then it says in Job 42.12, And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. We also see this when God gives wisdom to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, and ties blessing with keeping the law of Yahweh. It says, Now if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. I will bless you if you keep my word. And so we see in Psalm 119, verse 1, that when the psalmist uses blameless, it refers to direction. Direction. We even see this within the phrase itself. It says, whose way is blameless. And way is a metaphor for life's roadway, a path of life, a course of conduct that is marked out by God's word. To be blameless is about direction where the law points to the promise of God to ultimately repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be said of Abraham and Job and David that they were blameless because of the blessings of justification by faith and having a perfect righteousness reckoned to them. Being blameless also carries the idea of being the same person we are on the inside as we appear on the outside. Proverbs 11, verse 20. Those, who, those with a crooked heart are an abomination to Yahweh. But those of a blameless way are his delight. Blamelessness is having integrity, a sincere and unified desire, a certain manner of life, though sinful as we are, that we are continuing to walk in the direction of godliness. Not a hypocritical and divided heart, but a wholehearted direction of life towards God and his word. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Those who do not depart from the direction of the law can be confident that they are not going astray because God's word is infallible. It is unable to mislead or fail or guide you down the wrong path. Blameless is further specified in the next clause, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Those who are blessed are those whose way is blameless, and those whose way is blameless are those who walk in the law of Yahweh. Therefore, those who are blessed are those who walk in the law of Yahweh. 
The law of Yahweh is speaking about the Torah of Yahweh. It means instruction. It refers to direction and that which gives guidance. In other words, it provides divine instruction for our lives. It has to do with what we believe, what we are, and what we do. It includes the whole of God's divine written revelation as the guide of life, which is authoritative and sufficient. And those who are blessed walk according to this divine instruction for life. Walk refers to -to day-to-day living, a lifestyle, common, everyday practice, how one conducts himself each and every day. Therefore, blessedness is not just a status or a position. It is a walk. It is a way, a lifestyle, a blameless one that is characterized by integrity and direction. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's not just about our position before Christ that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 4 verse 1 goes on to say, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Our way and our walk is evidence of our being blessed of the Lord. In verse 2, the psalmist continues, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. The Christian life is an active life. The Christian life is an active life that seeks after God with all our hearts. Those whose way is blameless, that's an active lifestyle pursuing God. Those who walk in the law of Yahweh, there's a diligent effort pursuing God. Those who observe his testimonies, those who seek after him with all their heart. To observe is to keep watch over in order to conform one's actions or practice to. It carries the idea of to protect, to preserve, to guard with fidelity or to watch as in Jeremiah 31 of the watchman and of Ezekiel 6 and Jeremiah 4 keeping a close watch for enemies or besiegers seeking to take over the town. And so when the psalmist writes how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, testimonies referring to the divine witness of Scripture, God giving testimony to who he is and what he requires. It is a declaration of the will of God, God's standard of conduct. The blessed are those who observe and keep a close watch over Yahweh's testimonies in order to protect and preserve and guard their lives from anything that would harm them. And they do this by seeking him with all their heart. And to seek is in the imperfect tense, and so it describes a repeated and ongoing action that refers to reaching for something that one desires and to be intent on it, focused on doing so. And notice, what are they seeking continually? Him. The purpose of knowing the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. They are seeking Him with all their heart. First Timothy one five. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Paul says to Timothy that the goal of our instruction or command is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Not just more head knowledge, but love, which is affection and action, which is attitude and ambition. All your heart, the entirety of your inner man, all of who you are, your mind, your will, and your affections. And so the blessed are those who are not seeking him for purely head knowledge. The blessed are those who are not seeking him purely 
for head knowledge, but rather those who are seeking him with all their heart, mind, will, and affections. There's a difference between reading your Bible and delighting in reading your Bible. There's a difference between knowing more about God and loving God more. There's a difference between a cold, going through the motions, obedience, and an all-out seeking Him with all your heart obedience. Are you proud and content to just move the bookmark and to check off your daily Bible reading plan? Are you content with just hearing the word taught on Sundays? Or are you diligently pursuing the practice of it in your life during the week? In verse 3, the psalmist continues by saying that the blessed are those who do not work unrighteousness. Anything that does not conform to the standard of God, they walk in his ways. And again, ways speaking about a pattern of life that is marked out by the law of Yahweh. And do, to do, communicates that as well. It refers to someone who commits and practices and behaves in a certain manner. We see that it is not enough to just avoid evil, to not work on righteousness. But we must also, it says, walk in his ways. We must put on righteousness. This is sanctification. To turn from sin and to turn to following God's word. To put off, to replace, and to put on And how are we sanctified? By the Spirit of God through the Word of God. A holy person is a truly blessed person. There's no other way to be happy or blessed than to walk in His ways, to walk in the way of the Word. And to be blessed is to live life in conformity to God's Word. This is what God's Word affirms. This is what God's Word declares. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And this leads us to the next testifying reality of the Word of God. What it affirms? Blessedness. Secondly, what it requires? Obedience. What it requires? Obedience. Verses 4 through 6. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, may my ways be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. The Word of God requires obedience. The Word of God requires our obedience. Inherent in verse 4 is the creator-creature distinction. Who created us? God. Who has the right to command us what to do? God. He is the potter. We are the clay who has commanded or ordained us, verse 4a, God. The psalmist is is acknowledging who God is and what he has done. He states, you, which in the Hebrew grammar is emphatic. In other words, it says, you yourself, Yahweh and Yahweh alone have commanded us. And what has he commanded us? Verse 4b, to keep your precepts diligently. Precepts meaning a rule or guidelines intended to regulate behavior or thought. And what does he require? Us to keep his precepts diligently. In other words, he requires us to obey him. He requires obedience. To keep is to guard or to watch over something of value. But it also means to give heed to. 
And he says to do it diligently with exceedingly great might. In other words, with all your might, you're to give heed to the word of God. The word is authoritative and sufficient, and so it rightly demands and requires our loyalty, our allegiance, our life, and our all. And this doesn't just answer the who, who created us, and the what, what has he commanded us, what does he require, but also the why. Why has God created us? For his glory. Therefore, he has commanded us that we would keep and obey his commands and thus glorify him as we do. And as we do, we are those who are blessed. Yet we also know that we cannot do this on our own. And so the cry of our hearts, along with the psalmist, is verse 5. Oh, may my ways be established to keep your statutes. In other words, we depend upon God's empowerment and enabling grace to establish us. It is God who establishes us to make us steadfast and unshakable to keep his statutes, which, li- which means things inscribed. It refers to something prescribed, a regulation, an authoritative rule. And he'll later write in Psalm 119, verse 38, cause your word to be established for your slave as that which produces fear, reverential awe, respect, Worship for you, Yahweh. Do not think that you can do this on your own. Do not depend upon yourself. Do not think that it's about you. It's all about Him and His glory. This is why our focus on Yahweh is so important. Verse 2, seek Him with all your heart. Seek Him with all your heart. And so what is our guide in life? How do we know what to do? How do we know the path that leads to the blessed life that everyone is seeking after? Verse 4, keep your precepts. Verse 5, keep your statutes. Verse 6, look upon all your commandments. Where are his precepts, statutes, and all his commandments found? In the word of God. Our guide in life is the Word of God. Our guide in life is the Word of God. And we are not to just know them, but we are to keep them as we depend upon Him to establish our ways. Why? Because verse 6, Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. What does that imply? It implies that sin brings shame, but obedience doesn't because it will result in a good conscience before God, knowing that we are doing His will according to His word. The verse answers the question, when will you not be ashamed? And the answer, when I look upon all your commandments. To look means to carefully contemplate, to perceive with attention, to direct one's gaze toward to behold and to accept it favorably. And all just means all. All the commandments. And commandments refers to definitive, authoritative commands. Not suggestions, not optional, but binding divine decrees given by our Creator. Is this your relationship to the God of the Word? Is this your relationship to the Word of God? 
one that recognizes God's sovereign authority over your life and your submission and dependence upon him, that you would not be ashamed and that your ways would be established. This is the only path to the blessed life. So far, we've seen two testifying realities of the word of God. What it affirms, blessedness. What it requires, obedience. Lastly, verses 7 and 8, what it produces, holy affections. What it produces, holy affections. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. The word of God produces praise and dependence. The psalmist is stating that continued spiritual growth and praise and thanksgiving comes from learning the word of God. It will produce holy affections. Verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. To give thanks is to give praise. But it also carries the idea of confession. Both to confess who God is and also to confess one's sin. And our praise and thanksgiving is to be done with uprightness of heart, meaning with straightness, with honesty, because it is right. And it is what ought to be done because of who God is from the heart. The more we learn about Yahweh and his righteous judgments, his moral standard of truth and righteousness that determines what is right and what is wrong, the more we should praise and give thanks to him because he has revealed to us and made more clear to us the blessed path. And in verse 8, what else is there for the psalmist to do? As his affections grow, he becomes more resolved to obey Yahweh and and he becomes more dependent on Yahweh as well. Verse 8, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. He knows, again, that he cannot do this alone. He's saying, I need your grace. Do not forsake me utterly. Therefore, this is a humble prayer for divine help. I want to do this. I'm resolved, Lord. Yet I know I can't do this without you. I'm dependent upon you, Lord. Three testifying realities of the word of God as it relates to the blessed life and the necessity of the word of God in the life of a believer. What it affirms, blessedness, what it requires, obedience, what it produces, holy affections. If we neglect the word of God, we are casting aside blessing in our lives. It is those who are blessed that commit and devote their lives to the word of God. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. might be hard for you to obey the Lord, but obey him. How blessed you will be. This is the necessity of the word of God in the life of a believer and consequently what results if you neglect the word of God in your life. You're casting aside blessing. You're casting aside happiness. And this is not just general, but this is personal. This must become a personal reality in each one of our lives. Notice verse 1, 2, and 3. Psalmist uses those and they. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. 
How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him. They also do not work unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Now notice verse 4. goes narrows down to us. You have commanded us. And then notice verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It narrows even further to my and I. Oh, may my ways be established. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. The progression of the psalmist demonstrates that this is about more than just knowing this. This needs to become a reality and practice in your life. This needs to be, I will not be ashamed. I will look upon all your commandments. I will give thanks with uprightness of heart. I will learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me, Lord. I need you. This needs to become your way, your walk, your practice, your pattern of life, your lifestyle. Is your life saturated with the Word of God? Is it what you depend upon for life and godliness? Does it guide and direct and instruct your way of life? So how can we do this? We need to read our Word. We need to read God's Word. Plan it. Prioritize it. If you're not reading God's Word, make a plan to start. Pick a book, any book. Start and start reading. Prioritize it in your schedule. Prepare for it. Pick a place if that's helpful for you. Have your Bible open and ready for the next day's reading and study. And pray. Ask the Lord that your heart would delight in seeking after Him with all your heart. That you want to know Him. And that you depend upon Him to establish your ways. Pray and read and then pause and consider how you're going to practice it in your life. And then praise Him. Praise Him for revealing truth to you. Praise Him for having His Word to guide your path. Praise Him that His Word teaches you who He is. Praise Him for the work that His Word is doing in your life. And then pass on the truth to those around you. Speak of the Lord's goodness. Speak of the Lord's precepts and testimonies to those around you. Plan, prioritize, repair, pray, pause, practice, and pass it on. Get accountability. That helps as well. Talk to a brother or sister here. The blessing of walking in obedience to the Word of God is seen throughout this psalm. Almost every verse speaks about our obedience that God requires and how it relates to the blessed life. And this first stanza ends with holy affections, praise and worship. The psalms and this psalm are to form our hearts so that we would praise him even more. What we need in a sin-cursed and shaky world is a sure foundation. And that sure foundation is the revelation of the word of God We must have confidence in the Word of God and what it does, what it accomplishes. And therefore, we must immerse and saturate ourselves in the Word of God to know His will so that we can live life as He has intended for us to live. That will lead to true blessedness.
when the Word of God dwells deep in a person's heart and life, this God-given blessedness will flood and fill our souls. And so what happens in the life of those who make the Word of God the center of their lives? It produces men and women who are enjoying and experiencing the blessed life, even even in the midst of wickedness and difficulty and trials and suffering. The path to a blessed life is only found in the Word of God. And the path to a blessed life is conforming yourself to the Word of God and the law of Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for its clear instruction, its clear guidance. Help us to be those who are quick to hear, quick to obey. Father, help us to be faithful. You've preserved your word. You've revealed your word to us. Help us not to be those who would neglect it, to think that we know all that it contains because we've read it once or that we've read it many times. Your word contains unsearchable riches. We can never fully comprehend who you are. Help us to be those who long after you, who hunger and thirst for more of you and your word and more of righteousness. Father, would your spirit produce in us hearts of praise and thanksgiving and greater affections for your word. Father, help us to love your law and to keep it diligently and to seek it with all of our hearts. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are, that you revealed yourself to us through it, that you've used different men throughout history to write down your words. All scriptures breathe out by you. And so these words carry with it divine authority, divine power, that which we must submit our lives to as those created in your image. Father, help us to be those who would honor your word, obey your word, practice your word, proclaim your word, and share it with those around us. Father, we thank you for your son, for the cross, for your spirit. Pray for your help now in understanding your scriptures. Impress these truths upon our minds and hearts in a way that only your spirit can do that would lead to greater worship unto your name and glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have recounted all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. I've titled this sermon, The Pure Life. The Pure Life. One of the big questions in life that we must consider is what separates man 
from a holy God. What separates man from a holy God? The answer is that man lacks purity. Man lacks holiness. Man lacks righteousness. In other words, man is sinful. Sin separates us from a holy God. Another question that we must consider is, how can sinners be reconciled to a holy God? How can a holy God save sinners? The answer is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That means that God in love saw the corruption in this world and he sent his one and only son to be the one and only savior that this world has for sinners. That whoever believes in him, not in their works or anything else, but in him, Jesus Christ, the son of God and son of man, they shall have eternal life. It's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished. Again, he's the only savior this world has. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He's the only mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. Another question that we must consider is, why would a holy God save sinners? Why? The answer is that you might be pure, holy, blameless, and righteous for his glory. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Apostle Peter writes, As obedient children, do not, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is speaking about sanctification. God saved us so that we would be sanctified so that we would be made more into the image of his son, that we would be set apart from sin, that which separates us from a holy God, and set apart to purity, to holiness, and righteousness, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4 says, For God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. And Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. Again, I'm trying to lay out the testimony of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, 
so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been justified from sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle John writes, See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is sanctification. And how important is this? How revealing is this? How assuring is this for the believer? Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. As evidence of saving faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to pursue purity in a world of impurity. Furthermore, it is not enough to just think about purity. All of us do that. Hopefully, as those indwelt by the power of the Spirit, we think about purity. We shouldn't do that. I don't want to do that anymore. That's wrong. But it's not enough to just think about it. It must be sought after by actively, intentionally pursuing it. And it begins with permeating our minds with the truths of Scripture. And why are we to do that? Because increased knowledge and intimacy with God results in increased knowledge and hatred of sin. And therefore, an increased love for what God loves. Purity, holiness, and righteousness. There is a connection between the Word of God and your purity. If God's Word is not your priority, then neither is your purity. Remember that Psalms is a book that reveals God and praises God. And the Psalms are arranged to portray the goal of praising the Lord in the midst of enemies around us. We read about that with David. All the enemies surrounding him, seeking his life. The Psalms are about praising the Lord in the midst of enemies around us, but also praising the Lord with the reality of the sin that still remains within us. The Psalms are for us to know how to be blessed in the midst of wickedness and difficulty, but also to see sin for what it is and to repent of it and to praise the Lord for who he is and what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The truly blessed person, the Psalms teach us, will not allow his conception of blessedness to be shaped or influenced by the counsel of the wicked or this world or the ungodly. Rather, his delight will be, <clears throat> rather his delight will shape and form his path is the law of Yahweh, Psalm 1 verse 1. So our path, our way, our lives, in other words, are driven by whatever we allow to shape our image of what it means to be blessed, to be prosperous, to be happy. But it is only submission to God and His Word that will lead to true blessedness. And this has been the storyline from the very beginning, from Genesis 2 and 3, where God blessed mankind to rule over and have dominion over all the earth. Genesis 3, man failed to do that. We see the Psalms speaking about how the man is to be blessed in the eyes of God. We have the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Himself, teaching, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We have the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, speaking about blessing that comes with hearing and following and obeying the Word of God. 
God has given us the Psalms to form our hearts, which in turn lead us on the path of true blessedness. And in Psalm 119 in particular, the word of God is exalted so that we would be those who commit our lives to the word and are blessed. In the first stanza, verses 1 through 8, the psalmist taught us that if we neglect the word of God, then we are casting aside blessing in our lives. We took note of the necessity of the word of God in in the life of a believer and consequently what results if you neglect the word of God in your life. We saw three testifying realities of the word of God. First, what it affirms. God's word affirms authoritatively that blessedness comes from God. He's the source through the means of his word. What it affirms, blessedness. Secondly, what it requires, obedience. Because this word comes from God, the sovereign one, our creator, we are bound to it. We are to submit our lives to it. It requires our obedience to it. And we will answer to God one day for how we lived our lives. And thirdly, we saw what it produces. Holy affections. The word of God, knowledge of God, intimacy with God, drawing near to God, creates within our hearts greater affections for him. Holy affections. What it affirms, blessedness, what it requires, obedience, what it produces, holy affections. Do you want a life marked by the blessing of God? Then devote your life to Scripture. That's what we saw last week. If you neglect the Word of God, you're casting aside blessing in your life. And remember in that in this series, we're looking at each stanza and how each of these 22 stanzas give us a different picture. We're looking at 22 tragedies or dangers that result from neglecting God's word, or on the flip side, 22 promises and blessings that come to those who commit and devote their lives to the word of God. And this week, if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside purity in your life. If you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside purity in your life. In these verses, the psalmist will teach us that if we neglect the word of God, we are casting aside purity Or you can look at it as the psalmist teaching us the blessing or promise of purity that come to those who commit and devote their lives to the word of God. We're going to take note of eight key ingredients needed to live a pure life. Eight key ingredients needed to live a pure life. And each of these key ingredients will be summarized using one word. Verse 9, keep. Verses 10 and 11, treasure. Verse 12a, adore. Verse 12b, learn. Verse 13, proclaim. Verse 14, rejoice. Verse 15, meditate. And verse 16, remember. Those are the eight key ingredients needed to live a pure life. First key ingredient, verse 9, is to keep. Keep. Again, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. In the first line, keep pure is one word in Hebrew, and it means to be morally clean, to keep free from immorality or sin, to be undefiled, to be untainted. And it's in the strong verb form, meaning that it it expresses intensive action. And it's in the imperfect, meaning that this is to be ongoing in the life of the believer. So in other words, ongoing, intensive action to keep pure to keep free from immorality or sin. Does that describe your way of life? Does that describe 
your way of life? How can a young man keep his way pure? Way is a metaphor for life's roadway, a path of life, a course of conduct that is marked out by God's word. And yes, this is specifically addressed to a young man. How can a young man keep his way pure? A youth, and that's intentional and purposeful. But this is also applicable to all of us, whether young or old, male or female, as the testimony of Scripture affirms. So why does the psalmist address a young man? Spurgeon has said, quote, How shall he become and remain practically holy? He is but a young man, full of hot passions, and poor in knowledge and experience. How shall he get it right and keep right? Never was there a more important question for any man. Never was there a fitter time for asking it than at the commencement of life. It is by no means an easy task which the prudent young man sets before himself. Close quote. John Calvin has said, quote, Because youth puts men where two ways meet and renders it imperative for them to select the course of life which they mean to follow, he declares that uh, <clears throat> he declares that when a person sets about the regulation of his life, no advice will prove of any advantage unless he adopts the law of God as his rule and guide for life. Close quote. What way one chooses in terms of keeping pure as a young man has the power and influence to control the rest of your life. This is something a young man must learn earlier than later. The book of Proverbs addresses the young son in regards to wisdom and knowledge and understanding how to be prudent and wise, but also in regards to purity. And it all relates to and is in light of the fear of the Lord, knowing who he is, and his word. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days happen and the years draw near, in which you will say, I have no delight in them. I remember when I served in youth ministry, particularly with junior high students, high school students, college, and some young adults. And when it came to the young boys or the young men, keeping pure was one of the topics that was at the top of the prayer list. What I learned was that this was not just their biggest sin that they were enslaved to, this lack of purity, but it also was connected with why many of them also leave the church. Why? is the church losing young people. The second line of verse 9 kind of answers the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And there's lots of reasons why youth leave the church. But youth ministry, from my experience, the priority was not the teaching of the word of God. Churches have it wrong in terms of the philosophy of ministry for youth. Beyond that, they're disconnected from the church. They're isolated. They have no concept of what the church is, what the church looks like, how the people gather to worship together. We, I saw that it was more about games than God. It was more about guys and girls than the gospel. It was more about play than preaching. It was more about snacks than scripture. It was more about friends than faith. It was more about community than Christ. And this was on my heart as I served the church in youth ministry before I pursued seminary training. And in my application letter, they asked questions of, why do you want to come to this school? 
Why do you want to pursue pastoral ministry? And remember my answer to that question. In my application letter, I stated the burden that I had for the lack of teaching and preaching in youth ministry and the lack of gospel proclamation and the call for kids to repent and believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. And the psalmist captures and portrays the reality here. The sooner a person keeps his way according to the word of God, the better it will be. Spurgeon again says, it is a pity to miss for a year or even a day or an hour the blessedness which belongs to holiness. In the second line of verse 9, keeping means to guard or to watch over something of value, but it also means to give heed to. In other words, to obey. To obey what? All that is according to God's word. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, be filled with the spirit. How do you do that? How are you filled with the spirit? You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, having the mind of Christ. Galatians 5.16, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. A pure life is one that is according to God's word. The psalmist is aware of that. His awareness of the God of the word comes together with his awareness of the word of God. And if you ever read a systematic theology, you might wonder why it always begins with bibliology, the study of Scripture, or the nature of Scripture. Why not begin with who God is? Because what you believe about the nature of Scripture will answer the question about what you believe about everything else. God the Father, theology proper. God the Son, Christology. God the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. Man, anthropology. Sin, hamartiology. Salvation, soteriology. Angels, angelology, the church, ecclesiology, and eschatology, the future, the last things. What you believe about the nature of Scripture will answer the question about what you believe about the rest of the Scriptures. If it's not true, if it's not authoritative, then you can pick and choose what you want to believe. And so do you believe in the nature and sufficiency of God's Word? And not only do you believe in the nature and sufficiency of God's Word, we would all affirm that. Do you live like that is true? in your life. This is the cleansing and purifying power of God's word. This is why we must keep it. And this is why we must obey it. And so the first key ingredient needed to live a pure life is to keep, to obey God's word. The second key ingredient needed to live a pure life is found in verses 10 and 11. Treasure. With all my heart I have sought you Do not let me stray from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Here we see the connection between our hearts, what we treasure, and straying from God's commandments and sinning against God. Verse 10 says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. Again, we see this awareness of the God of the word. I have sought you with an awareness of the word of God. Do not let me stray from your commandments, from your word. The psalmist says, with all my heart. This is a holy longing within his soul for God, that he would not stray or wander, or verse 11, sin against his maker. We sing, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We must continually 
seek the Lord with all our heart. And the second line of verse 10, treasure it in our heart. To treasure means to hide, to store up that which is regarded as highly valued. What does a psalmist treasure? God's word. And where does he hide it and store it up? In his heart. Not on his shelf or bookcase or on his table, but the word of God is in his heart. Heart has to do with one's inner self, the inner man, who you are, the core of you. And again, we're in the second stanza looking at Beth. And Beth means house in Hebrew. You are to make the word of God a home in your heart. We treasure the word in our hearts because we treasure God in our hearts. And as we treasure God and his word in our hearts, that will help us to keep our way pure. And heart has to do with intentions, purposes, and thoughts. This relates to and involves our conscience, which acts as a governing force informing our intentions and purposes and thoughts, judging whether they are good or evil, righteous or unrighteous. And note that it doesn't mean that your conscience is always right. It doesn't mean that your conscience is always right. Because your conscience could be ill-informed. Your conscience could be seared. It could be untrained in biblical morality and truth. It could be trained by an unbiblical standard, which will lead to legalism. Your conscience doesn't always inform you what is true, especially when it's not trained biblically. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 2 to 4, the Apostle Paul speaks of his own conscience. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. He's saying in my own conscience, I'm not doing anything wrong, but that doesn't make me innocent. Just because my conscience is telling me, is not telling me anything is wrong doesn't make me not guilty. So what does then? He says, but the one who examines me is the Lord. It is the truth of what God says. The truth of God's word. And a professor of mine in seminary, John Street, said, quote, Our conscience is not our guide. Our conscience is not our guide and should never be our guide. Our conscience is our guard. The Word of God is our guide. Conscience has been defined as an intuition of the moral law. It is a warning light that reveals guilt. It literally means knowledge with another or knowledge within oneself, knowing with. It has also been said that the conscience is the soul your soul perpetually reflecting on itself. The conscience involves what we know or believe rather than what we feel. And it must be informed according to God's word because it is God's word that you do not want to stray from. What happens when your conscience is not according to God's word? It becomes ill-informed. It starts looking to other places for truth. It becomes misled or seared. And it leads to the wrong, leads to wrong thinking and impure and sinful living. One example of this, I came across this past week. 
It's called the Sparkle Creed. Some churches recite creeds that are according to Scripture. I've never heard of this creed, the Sparkle Creed. And this creed was originally penned in 2021 by a female minister, Rachel Small Stokes, a so-called pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. And its use has caught on and is being recited by congregations across the U.S. And this is what the creed says. This is not meant to be funny, but to show the foolishness of not seeking God according to his word and what can happen when your conscience is seared and when it's not according again to God's word. This is what the creed says. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. This is why we must, with all our heart, mind, conscience, will seek the Lord and his word and treasure it within us so that we would not stray from his commandments and therefore sin against God because you believe what you're doing is right before God's eyes, but it's not according to his word. The psalmist, his aim was holiness, purity, righteousness. He says that I may not sin against you. And how do we actively pursue that? We treasure God's word in our heart. Keep and treasure. The third key ingredient needed to live a pure life is verse 12a, adore. Adore. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Blessed here means to praise, to adore, to speak about with words of excellence. And the psalmist is adoring and praising Yahweh for who he is. And this is connected with the word of God and how a young man can keep his way pure. That's the context. A life that is focused on adoring God is a life that will pursue pure living. How can you praise God for who he is? How can you speak of him with words of excellence and live a life contrary? How can you behold his holiness and not walk in light of it? It's important to adore God to study who he is, the perfections of God, the attributes of God, as the ladies have just done. It increases your knowledge of who God is. It opens your eyes to how big and how great and how awesome he is. And your hearts are formed with greater affections for who he is. And you begin to adore him more and more. That's the third key ingredient to live a pure life. It's just to adore God for who he is. The fourth key ingredient needed to live a pure life is the second half of verse 12 is to learn. Learn. Teach me your statutes, the psalmist says. Who is the primary teacher? It's God through his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 17, Paul prays for the saints at Ephesus and he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge 
of him. The psalmist understands that he is a disciple. In other words, he's a learner. He says, teach me. We need to learn from the Holy One how to live holy lives. We need the sanctifying and cleansing education from the master teacher in his word. Verse 33 of Psalm 119 says, Instruct me, O Yahweh, in the way of your statutes, that I may observe it to the end. Psalm 119, verse 66, Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 124, Deal with your slave according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. Psalm 119, 171. Let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. And here in verse 12b, again, teach me your statutes. He's a learner. He's a disciple. And statutes means things inscribed. It refers to something prescribed, a regulation, an authoritative rule. It characterizes the binding force and the immovable nature of Scripture. It was used to speak of laws that were engraved in stone or inscribed to be everlasting. In other words, God's word is not temporary, but eternal. Teach me your eternal word. Is that our prayer? Is that our prayer? Is that your disposition? To want to learn from God's word and to keep learning from God's word? Is that your longing? Is that your desire? Is that your learning? Or are you looking elsewhere to figure out how to live a pure life? God is holy, and only his holy word will make you holy. Learn from him. The fifth key ingredient needed to live a pure life is found in verse 13. Proclaim. With all my lips, with my lips, I've recounted all the judgments of your mouth. Notice the parallelism with, of with my lips, I've recounted at the beginning of the verse with of your mouth at the end of the verse. The psalmist viewed himself as a mouthpiece for God. One who proclaims him, one who recounts all his judgments. In other words, his ordinances, his laws, his moral standard of truth and righteousness that determines what is right and wrong. It characterizes the unalterable decisions of the all-wise judge of all the earth. And in connection with verse 12, as a disciple, we are to be disciple makers and discipling others, proclaiming the truth. As a church, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are to be building up one another in the faith. And as we consider and recount all his judgments from the heart, what will flow out of the heart from to our lips will be his word. That is what we'll, we will proclaim. We are to be those who practice and proclaim. And if his judgments provide the authoritative rule for our lives, how to live a pure life, then we must learn it, practice it, and proclaim it. Much more could be said about this, but the sixth key ingredient needed to live a pure life is rejoice, verse 14. The psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Obedience to the word of God brings rejoicing. Obedience to God's word brings rejoicing. The word rejoice means to delight to take a high degree of pleasure or satisfaction in. 
The psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Testimonies referring to the divine witness of Scripture. The psalmist says, over time and in time, because of the word of God, come to delight and rejoice in it as much as in all riches, referring to material possessions and wealth. He understands that the word of God testifies of salvation in Christ, sanctification by the power of the Spirit, and sufficiency for all of life and godliness. And in those things, he rejoices. First Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In John 15, verse 11, Jesus said to his disciples, in speaking about God's word, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. In Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19, verse 10, The word of God is more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. If you rejoice in the way of God's testimonies, you will not rejoice in the way of sin. The seventh key ingredient needed to live a pure life is found in verse 15. Meditate. Meditate. I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. The psalmist says, I will muse upon your precepts. Precepts refers to a rule or guidelines intended to regulate behavior or thought. And muse means to meditate, to ponder, to talk to oneself, to vocalize. And so it has the idea of murmuring about something. What do we do when we muse on something? We allow it to roll around in our mind. We consider it from every angle. But to muse or meditate on something is more than just something we do with our mind. It's more than something we do with our mind. It's something we do with our heart, meaning that we allow it to form and shape our heart. Meditation is more than just studying or memorizing scripture. It's more than just thinking about doctrine. It is writing or engraving the word of God on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 3, verse 3, Do not let loving kindness and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. It is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3, 16. And how do we do that according to the context of that verse in Colossians 3? By singing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in our hearts to God. God has given us the Psalms, these songs, to form our hearts, which in turn lead us on the path of true blessedness. In the Psalms, praise is the expected outcome, but meditation is the underlying activity which we are to undertake in as we allow the Word to form our hearts as we look to the God of the Word in the Word of God. Verse 15 continues, I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. He will not only muse, but also look. Look means to carefully contemplate, to regard, to perceive with attention, to direct one's gaze toward to behold something and to accept it favorably. Meditation and looking upon the Word of God and the ways of God will protect and guard your heart and mind and instruct your conscience so that you can keep your way pure. Keep, treasure, adore, learn, proclaim, 
rejoice, meditate. The last key ingredient, the eighth key ingredient needed to live a pure life is verse 16. Remember, remember. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. The psalmist repeats the reality of delighting in God's word. In verse 14, it was, I have, but here it is, I shall. In other words, I will continue to delight in God's word. And he closes the second stanza with, I shall not forget your word. It is the word that purifies. It is the word that cleanses. It is the word that sanctifies you. We need to keep it. We need to adore it. We need to learn it. We need to proclaim it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to meditate upon it. And we need to remember it. How often do we forget things? How often was Israel called to remember what God had said? For Israel to remember the covenant, the faithfulness of God. How often did Jesus tell his disciples to remember his words and what would happen to him? Even the Apostle Paul in his last letter to the church before his death in 2 Timothy 2.8 said this to <clears throat> Timothy and really to the church. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead of the seed of David according to my gospel. Notice also that to meditate or to muse, verse 15, is sandwiched between the words rejoice in verse 14 and delight in verse 16. In other words, you will not forget, you will not forget that which you rejoice and delight in, that which you meditate upon and look upon. If you meditate upon something and look upon something and rejoice and delight in it, you will not forget it. If you neglect the word of God, you are casting aside purity in your life. But if you commit and devote yourself to the word of God, you will enjoy the blessing or promise of purity in your life, of sanctification by the Spirit according to the truth. This is how a young man can keep his way pure in thoughts and actions. It involves the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will. Keep, treasure, adore, learn, proclaim, rejoice, meditate, and remember. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Is purity a priority in your life? Is sanctification, if you want to use a different term, a priority in your life? Is putting off sin and putting on righteousness a priority for you? Does that mark your path in life? The psalmist has given us the means of purity, which is the sufficient and sanctifying word of God that will lead to the right practice of purity. And when it comes to sin, we want to put it to death. We want to mortify it. We want to make no provision for the flesh. Remember that we have been saved that we might be pure, holy, and righteous slaves of Christ. Are we, as the temple of God, of Christ and the Holy Spirit, being sanctified by the word of truth that we might be useful to our master? Second Timothy 2, verses 19 to 22 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. 
Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of clay, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, having been prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you want to walk with God, you need to know his word. If you want to make spiritual progress in your life, you need to know the word of God. If you want to grow in desire and affections for him, you need to know the word of God. You need to meditate upon his word. If you want to live a pure life, you need to look to his word. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It is the word of God that sanctifies, cleanses, and purifies and the word of God is sufficient. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is why God has commanded and prescribed and regulated for the church how it ought to conduct itself when it comes together to worship. And that is centered around God, and it's centered around God's word. He wants a pure bride. That is why we read the word, why we sing the word, why we pray the word, why we listen to the word why we serve one one another and build one another up with the word. And through the word, not only comes the blessing of purity, but as we'll see next week, the blessing of wisdom. The blessing of wisdom. We'll see next week that if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside wisdom from God for your life. Last week we saw the blessed life. That blessedness only comes from God and is only found in obedience to his word. Are you starting to see and understand the importance and absolute necessity of the word of God for your life? Why we must be in the word daily, praying the word, meditating upon it, looking to it, speaking it to one another, proclaiming it, Proclaiming the gospel so that those who may hear the word of Christ and be saved and proclaiming the word to believers so that they would be built up in the faith and edified and strengthened. God works in his church through the word by his spirit. Believe that and look to the word, his all-sufficient, powerful word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word purifies us, sanctifies us, cleanses us, Again, we confess before you that we fall short, that we can never do this on our own. But through your Son, through the promise given to us of your Spirit that now indwells us and has taken home and residence within us, because of the power of your Word, we have now been empowered and strengthened and given the means through which, as we confess our sins, you cleanse us, you sanctify us, you make us more like your Son, according to your word, by your truth. Father, help us to 
treasure your word in our hearts, to delight in it, to adore you, to look to you, to learn from you, to remember how important your word is in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.